0: Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now.
1: Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life?
0: Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them.
1: Just before we get into this episode about prostate cancer, I have Dr. Troy Wallet, General Practitioner uh, with me. Troy, if I were a patient coming to you with my tail between my legs, I I feel like I need to have this digital examination on this um, pathway to understanding my risk of prostate cancer. What would your reaction be?
2: This is a very common Presentation and a lot of times men come in because either they're worried because their friends had had prostate cancer or they've been come, they've been sent in by their loved ones or somebody that cares for them. And generally in these consults, it's really important to to establish why they are there, what their concerns are, and then explain to them uh, the risks and benefits of screening. Uh, for these prostate tests, because obviously, if they follow the path of getting tested, it can lead to negative outcomes, which will be explained more in,
1: in, sort of through this podcast. In this episode, we're looking at prostate cancer, Travis, <laughs> um, and we have uh, Dr. Bradley Webster joining us later uh, to dive deep. But I've got a question without notice, if you don't mind. I've heard said that many men die with prostate cancer as opposed to dying of prostate cancer. Can I set that up as a an opening saute for our conversation?
0: Certainly, and that is that is correct. Uh, we, it is interesting looking at prostate cancer to see that there are some forms of very aggressive. They tend to be in younger men, um, very aggressive, and these, these tend to be uh, difficult and a challenge to manage. Uh, when you get a little bit uh into the older age brackets so 70 80 it, it tends to be quite what we call an indolent form of cancer and so it's not aggressive uh people will die of other causes from from it uh, but it's always a bit of a challenge to work out it almost behaves like a different disease in young people as to old people uh, i don't think we have a full grasp of why it behaves differently but maybe Dr Bradley Webster will be able to shed some light on that but uh, at the moment I'm not aware of being able to differentiate but it all it behaves very differently sometimes in in young younger patients as opposed to older patients that's
1: got to be a challenge for GPs in their communication because I'm a bloke and I just grasp onto that little insight, and I think, well, there you go. I don't have to pay much attention to it. That's that's the dilemma.
0: It is. It is a dilemma. It's it's hard. And this is this is where you can see uh, the medical community and research and how uh, our understanding cl- grows with time. Uh, and uh, it is trying to work out how uh, something behaves, getting different indications. And this is why we did write the reports that we do structured reports, and that. Hopefully, gives us insight as to say, no, this one is uh, aggressive or this one isn't, and we have staging and grading, and we, we try to put it into categories to know how it's going to behave.
1: And as a general pathologist, how does it intersect your world?
0: There's two areas. Um, I will be involved in a lot of the chemistry area, so that's being... Uh, overviewing the PSA testing which is a chemistry testing which we'll get into in a little bit uh, but um, occasionally I'll see some uh, histology but t- to be honest it will I will generally defer that to the specialist histopathologist because they report it every day uh, they know uh, deal with urologists at the time so they will actually look at look at it down the microscope put it into the category write the reports so
1: I'm, I am moving uncomfortably in my seat as we talk about this, but back in the history of time, the emergence of prostate cancer as a thing.
0: Well, actually, I might, I might start with a question for you then,
1: uh, Steve. Okay. This is not in my contract, by the <laughs> way.
0: Let's look back 1927. Okay. So we've got a doctor. His name is Dr. Charles Huggins. So he is a young surgeon. He's actually appointed... To the University of Chicago faculty as a urology surgeon, but he doesn't have any experience in urology. Right. So he crams for four to six weeks mm-hmm. on the urology textbooks of the time and gets up to speed. I'm worrying about where this is going. <laughs> now he's fortunately doesn't go to a busy clinic. Okay. So he decides he's going to set up shop and start to do uh, metabolic examinations or metabolic tests. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you, we've got the prostate. Now, you generally know, the the interesting thing is about our textbooks of high school students is well above the physicians of, you know, the 1800s, right? Your knowledge is actually very good with regards to, you know, physiology, anatomy. So you know where the prostate is?
1: Pretty close.
0: (laughs) So Dr. Charles Huggins... Yes. ...is saying, how do I get... Secretions from this organ, mm-hmm. and then test it to see how we go. How would you go about that?
1: Ah, um, well, I imagine he's very hands-on <laughs> as a, as uh, surgeons back in those days. How would a I, well, I uh, preferably you wouldn't want to um, prick anything down there because it's sensitive. So I don't look. Travis, this is very unfair.
0: <laughs> it's, a, look, it's a hard question, and this is what scientists have had to come up with all the time. Oh, you it's have, hard. You have an organ that you're wanting to uh, investigate more. Mm. How do you do that? What we know is yes. where the prostate is located. Mm-hmm. So when we have things like uh, sperm and semen going up, it comes from the testis. The problem is that then contaminates the secretions. So Uh, then you'll be measuring coming from the testis. The problem is it sits above the bladder. So it also drains urine going through it. So then how do you not get contamination from urine? How did he solve this? So he solved it by getting dogs involved, oddly enough. Okay. So so you weren't going down that path? (laughs) No, I wasn't. (laughs) What we have is he's got a bladder that he's wanting to, to drain of urine. Yep. And then a prostate, which he's wanting to get the secretions from. Yep. So what he's done is he does surgery on the dogs to mm-hmm. put a catheter in the bladder and then stitches a, a drain into the prostate and then he can get prostate secretions. Oh, okay. So This is back in 1927. It is. Right. It is. So he then is able to start performing metabolic tests on the prostate to see what's going on and, and evaluate how that's going. So it's a bit of an interesting challenge, and particularly for a person who's... I bet a the dog would agree surgeon. with that yeah. too. <laughs> but So what he ended up finding was when he got that, when he was able to get the secretions, mm-hmm. he then found out that through desexing the dog, castration, yes. when you took the testosterone away from the dog, the prostate shrunk. It involuted. Oh. So... The hormone, testosterone, from the testis of the dog Mm -hmm. is involved in growth for the prostate. That in itself was very interesting. able to demonstrate that. And a prostate
1: enlarging is symptomatic of the issues, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. So (laughs) there is uh, something that we call benign prostatic hyperplasia, so that's the prostate getting larger. Again, one of those ones where the applications are interesting. We then get to a point, though, and this is just, through chance, that the dogs are one of the very rare animals that get prostate cancer.
1: Ah, that's where this quote would be appropriate, wouldn't it, Travis? Uh, This is from the good doctor. Um, He said, it was vexatious to encounter a dog with a prostatic tumour during a
0: metabolic study. So in his metabolic experiments, you started to find he was getting tumour cells in the secretions. Now he... Wasn't sure how to deal with that He initially thought well you have to take out The dog from the study because it's a mm. Therefore it's a contaminant But then what he realised is well, What happens if we test desex the dog What happens to the tumour The theory of the time is that cancer is Unregulated Proliferation of cells Therefore it shouldn't do anything But he wasn't a cell biologist And so he thought If it shrinks the normal prostate will it shrink the malignant tumour? And it did. It didn't just shrink it, it had a remarkable effect on the tumour cells within a few days. So then he realised that cancer cells still have some level of regulation within them from the testosterone hormone. What the metabolic experiments showed was that if you reintroduce testosterone, the prostate wouldn't shrink. So he realised that at that point in time, that the cancer cells still had a regulatory mechanism through hormones. And that changed for prostate and for breast cancer, the understanding of malignancy and the pathways that it, that it traveled down. He got the Nobel Prize for this in 1966 uh, for physiology or medicine it changed the way of our understanding of um, hormone regulation in, ca- in in cancer, particularly for prostate and breast.
1: I hope his dog got a reward for it as well.
0: <laughs> he, he may have, you don't know. No.
1: You mentioned at the beginning, we might be going down a rabbit hole with this discussion. I think we need to pause. <laughs> for a moment, readjust our, our sitting, and uh, come back in just a moment to actually um, delve into this PSA testing, because I'm hoping what I can do these days is a lot more comfortable than what his dogs had to put up with. So Dr. Troy, if I could just interrupt, I got the suspicious insight then that I might be able to leave your surgery without having to have this digital exam. Now, I'd like to know, first of all, have I grasped that correctly? And if I have, how do you know that we've all understood the decision I'm making to not have either the digital exam or the PSA test uh, clearly?
2: But I often think about the psychology of people or just the way that people work. And there's multiple layers here because I can sit and tell them everything that I know but they'll, people will still sit there and go, hmm, yes, and often jump at the chance of not getting the prostate test because they didn't want it in the first place. There's also this protection aspect, and I, and I hate to think kind of legally, but you kind of have to do a little bit because if in three months time, the person ends up getting cancer, when they think back to the consult, they will have a feeling rather than remember the words. And the feeling that they may get is that they were persuaded not to get the test. And I'm very aware of that. So so one of the tricks that I do is that um, once I've had the discussion with them, I write out the pathology form that will have PSA testing on the form, and I get them to cross it out. So then on my software, on my medical software, it'll say the test, and I'll have PSA written there, and I'll document it patient crossed it out and I often they'll cross it out in front of me sometimes they'll say oh, I'll go and have the test I'll go and talk to my wife or my loved one and get it crossed out for them but that way if it ever comes back to me I can say to them well I actually gave you the test and you made the decision and you crossed it out so that's just a little tip that I have understanding people and understanding that they don't remember the words they remember the feeling
1: all right I'm not good at these sorts of topics because they're very close to home Travis but let's gear up for act two, as we go deeper into the realm of prostate cancer. So we've had those first discoveries. Where are we now historically?
0: So the prostate's been been known about, but probably ignored, uh, mainly for thousands of years. We, we have uh, Herophilus and of Chalcedon and, and Galen of Pergamum who write about it.
1: Glands which poured a humour into the urinary passages of the male to excite the sexual
0: act, and, and so that's pretty much what it was thought about for thousands of years. Uh, we we then get Andreas of Vesalius, who is quoted as rediscovering the prostate when when he noted that it was a fleshy organ under the under the bladder, uh, and this is where. Uh, you get into when you start getting into the urology surgery you you end up do going down a rabbit hole because there's things where we don't see it so much these days it is but what they talk about bladder stones and uh, kidney stones there's a there's a procedure written about extensively in the in uh, medical well let's say journals and textbooks about what they call perineal lithotomy Um, now your perineum is the bit between genitals and the anus. Okay. And so when we're talking about bladder stones, uh, effectively we're saying surgeons of ancient times used to do what they would call cut for the stone. And so using a hook and a knife, Mm -hmm. they would then cut for the stone. And so this is again, pre anesthetic look i again it's it's hard to read because effectively someone we would be put in a position with two men holding legs uh and then they would go through the perineum uh they would have a knife and a hook and about 50% perc- 50% of people died from the procedure but those who didn't probably got rid of their bladder stones i'm not sure if it was worth it but uh, these people were surgeons Even Hippocrates uh, in his uh, Hippocratic Oath Said he wouldn't cut for the stone He would leave that to uh, people trained in that field Right. Uh, and then you've got some of the Roman surgeons Saying it was not safe to do it in a paediatric population Because the prostate Presumably because the prostate was too large to cut through And that would cause other problems So it, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting reading exercise in that we do have evidence there's actually two of the oldest cases that we know the one is uh, an egyptian mummy who's, who's known as is m1 mm-hmm. uh, which is 2250 years old uh, he was a, a man of 50 to 60 years old um, but because now we have high resolution ct and his mummy was intact we know that there was actually small dense round objects throughout his pelvis uh, his lumbar spine, his arms and legs, uh, and he would have died because of metastatic prostate cancer. There is an older case, which is 2,700 years ago, uh, which is a Scythian king. This from is from the Eurasian Steppe. Uh, it found in a very uh, ornate tomb, but the issue for him was effectively almost his entire skeleton was involved. So this was a a man who would have been in a lot of pain. Uh, They couldn't find any normal bone on microscopy. uh, So it almost looks like his entire skeleton was involved. So this is an ancient disease. There is theories out there and there is some evidence that it's because humans started eating meat and the carcinogens in that Mm -hmm. uh, started to affect prostate. And there is some studies that suggest people who are strict vegans have lower rates. Of prostate cancer and that uh, Again, it's It's not well, quite as simple as that though, is it? No, no And again, we don't have a magic bullet As to why it's caused What's what's going on with it But one of the things that we've mentioned uh, Is the grading uh, and we do have a grading scheme. It's from a, a Dr. Donaldson Gleason, uh, who did a grading scheme in 1966. He was, he was asked by urology department, because there were so many different grading schemes, no consistency, he came up with the grading score that we use to this day. There's been a few modifications, but effectively what it was is he did a map of all the different kinds of glands that you could find that were abnormal and malignant. Uh, and then he put them into grades and effectively it was sort of grades one to five, uh, one looking like normal tissue all the way through to five, which is pretty much sheets of cells. Uh, and then from there, we were able to work out, oh, this behaves badly and this, does, this behaves better. And then from there, that takes us to the PSA uh, testing
1: yes which i was hoping is going to be my easy way without the doctor needing to be all that invasive for my uh, checkup
0: psa is actually a co- controversial all the way through like even even at its beginning like it was identified in well in between 20 years in in 1960 to 1980 there's about eight different scientists who claim that they've discovered it uh some people attributing something with you know yes this author helped so it's it's mired in controversy but we do have psa so it's a blood test that we take uh sometimes referred to as a tumor marker but it's a protein secretions from the prostate, seminal vesicles have PSA in it. So what PSA is, is it dissolves seminal coagulum. So it's important for uh, fertility uh, and sperm motility. It's in the most concentration in semen, but a small amount of it goes into blood. It's about a one millionth concentration goes into the blood. And we can test that. The problem with PSA is that Most of the conditions that increase PSA's value in the serum don't have anything to do with malignancy. Meaning false positives? So, well, it's not false positives because it's elevated in the normal condition, meaning that if you're testing for cancer, let's say four men have an elevated PSA, three will not be related with cancer. So there'll be other conditions that raise it, meaning that at a population level, that's a really bad screening test because a lot of people will be getting positive tests that don't have cancer. And yet here
1: I am feeling guilty because I have been putting my GP under pressure to just do the PSA test that's all I want and he pushes back I mean quite literally Uh, but uh, I just so that's that itself is a communication challenge because we just get the wrong end of the stick.
0: The challenge with PSA is for people who have prostate cancer and then have the prostate removed it's actually an really good test because you should have all your normal prostate tissue as well as the cancerous tissue removed Mm -hmm. now as we know if you take the prostate all out then there should be no PSA because there's no tissue able to make it the interesting thing about that is if the glands or some of the malignant cells have moved they will still be producing PSA as their normal function, but it's malignant cells. So that is when if you detect PSA in someone who's had their prostate out, then that's an abnormal result. So in someone as a screening population test, not a good test in that area. For someone who's had their prostate out that shouldn't have any prostatic tissue left at all, It's a very good monitor to see if anything's producing PSA.
1: Would you be offended if I got a second opinion from Dr Bradley (laughs) Webster? (laughs) Absolutely not. Because he's just about to join us to continue this discussion about prostate cancer. The weird thing was, uh, three months after the appendix operation, still in a lot of pain. So they sent me for a prostate exam. Have you had that one, my friend? Yep, you just gave it a thumbs up, so I'm assuming that's a yes and how it happened. (laughs) The thing is, not enough men in Australia are having their prostate checked. Uh, And it's because men are scared. Men are generally scared that it's gonna be the most painful thing in the world. But I'm here to tell you right now, from experience, as a community health announcement, it will only hurt if your prostate's inflamed. And if your prostate's inflamed, it's a good thing you're seeing a doctor anyway, so it's just as well you're there. If your prostate's healthy, in all honesty, Feels kind of nice. As mentioned earlier, we are being joined now by Dr. Bradley Webster. Although you have said I can say Brad. That's right. All right. Brad, welcome. Uh, Brad is a histopathologist in ClinPath, uh, specializing in uropathology and lymphoid pathology. That's correct. You got it right? I did. I was trying to. hemolymphoid pathology. To be correct. Uh, all right. So let's um, continue our discussion of prostate cancer now.
0: Brad, can you give us a bit of background as to how common prostate cancer is? And
3: that sounds like an easy question, but there are actually two parts to the answer there. So, prostate cancer is the most common male non-skin cancer. So obviously there are skin cancers like basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, which are much more common um, than all the other cancers. But um, in terms of non-skin cancers prostate cancer is most common in men your lifetime risk as a male of getting prostate cancer is about 10 percent. but they've done studies on older deceased gentlemen so we're talking autopsy studies here um, where they've looked at the entire prostate and what they've found is about 40 to 50 percent of them have tiny foci of prostate cancer it follows then that a significant proportion of men will have cancer and never know it and they'll die with the cancer rather than from the cancer and I think that is the essence of um, I guess the difficulties that we have to deal with when um, we're treating or trying to diagnose prostate cancer.
0: Well Steve actually started with uh, the question so how most people die with prostate cancer than from prostate cancer and, and, and I agreed but clearly that those statistics are...
3: Yeah it's, 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 it's quite um, surprising I think. Um, Often we'll, we'll get specimens for bladder cancer in males that will have the bladder and the prostate comes out with it. Um, and we know that it's been taken out for bladder cancer, but often we'll see s- small incidental um, tumours in the prostate. And again, often they're low-grade, so they're tumours that the, would never have, um, or in all likelihood, would never have um, given the patient any problems.
0: How does it present then? How will, how will prostate cancer that's significant present?
3: The presentation of prostate cancer... These days, now that we have PSA screening, is usually it's by doing the PSA tests and then by the core biopsies um, that you will go on to get if you have a raised PSA. Brad, if I can just interrupt. PSA,
1: uh, Travis and I were talking about it earlier uh, and talking about
3: some grey areas. What's your perspective on the usefulness of this as a test? Yeah, you're right. It is a very grey area. Um, And it, it is controversial. And I think that... As more data comes out, the recommendations do change. Um, it's very useful once a patient's had therapy, once we know they have prostate cancer and we can follow them. So once they've had a prostatectomy, in theory, there shouldn't be any PSA detectable. So if there is a rise in PSA, then that means, okay, maybe there's there's some prostate cancer remaining. In terms of population screening, the idea behind, I think, population screening is we want to detect tumors at an earlier time point before they can go on to cause morbidity and mortality. Um, And the issue with PSA is that although it can be increased by the presence of a tumor, it can also be increased by um, benign things. So um, BPH, which is benign prostatic hyperplasia or hypertrophy, um, that's quite common in older men and that can also increase um the PSA um inflammation of the prostate trauma so if you're an avid bike rider um Mm. sitting on a seat all day putting in hours uh that can also increase your PSA good I'm safe on that one (laughs) (laughs) we have we have uh age defined ranges for PSA and if you do have a PSA test and you're above that range then you you know you should go on to have a biopsy um unless there are obvious reasons why the PSA should be elevated Um, but because it's a low specificity test then a lot of men will have a biopsy to show that they have a normal prostate Um, but at the same time we will we will pick up a lot of um, tumors which otherwise would have gone unnoticed and the question is is that a lot of these tumors are also going to be these low-grade tumors we talked about and then I think that's where the argument um about population level screening using PSA um, pops up is that we know that a lot of these low-grade tumors would never have caused the patient problems. So there is a potential for over-treatment. Um, And that I think is the dilemma in prostate cancer. Um, We want to detect prostate cancers and we want to treat the ones that are going to cause harm to the patient and at the same time not over-treat the tumors that would never have done um, any harm. The patient you know, could have lived a full life and not have even known that they were there. Before PSA screening, um, prostate cancer presented at a more advanced stage. So um, most men who have ever gone to the doctors to have their prostate checked up would know that a digital rectal exam is one of the simplest tests. So that's basically uh, finger up the backside and seeing if you can feel a hard or irregular prostate. So in order for a tumor to be palpable, it's often has to be quite large or quite advanced by the time you can feel it it's it's a, a, you know bigger than what it might be if you detected it by psa screening in the past prostate cancer might be uh the first presentation might be with quite advanced de- disease so um with metastasis so it might be with bone pain or it might be the tumors invading into adja- adjacent organs um it might be picked up by incidental imaging so um, know, a CT scan might find evidence of metastases. What's interesting is that the prostate surrounds the urethra, and we know that older men can have difficulties with the waterworks, and that's because the prostate becomes quite nodular um, and can impede the flow of um, urine through the urethra. But most prostate cancer actually arises at the periphery of the gland, so it's quite unusual for prostate cancer to present with urinary difficulties, although it can happen.
0: How does it behave biologically then?
3: Yeah, so it's this bit of a disconnect there between 10%, there's a lifetime risk of um, 10% of clinically um, detectable prostate cancer, but we know that about 40 to 50% of um, men over the age of 50 in autopsy studies will have prostate cancer. So there's a there's this spectrum of biological um behavior in prostate cancer. So, these low-grade tumors or um, have quite an indolent behavior. And then that the spectrum goes all the way through, so highly aggressive tumors, which will, um, which will kill the patient. So, the fact that we have these low-grade tumors, we don't want to necessarily overtreat the patient because we know that these patients will live with the cancer and die with it, but not from it. So, there's, there's a strategy that urologists use called active surveillance or watchful waiting, so that's basically, they'll follow the patient, um, they might look at the PSA levels, they might do biopsies, um, and they'll just follow that patient, um, you know, this over years, um, and to see at what point whether they need to uh, take on more aggressive uh, course of action. Does that include having biopsies and getting graded, staged? It's probably a good time to talk about grades now, now that we're talking about um, the spectrum of biological um, behaviour. When we talk about tumour grade, we're basically talking about what's the sort of intrinsic um, aggressiveness or intrinsic biological behaviour of that tumour. So we know prostate uh, cancers, it's it's not one homogenous group but it has a wide range of behavior so we apply a grading system um, which you've probably already talked about which is the gleason grading system basically in the 60s this guy called gleason um, he was given the task of trying to come up with a way of uh, predicting the behavior of prostate cancer by looking at it under the microscope and he found that there were about five different patterns under the microscope which funnily enough were numbered one, three to five. So one looked very much like normal prostate tissue and five was clearly malignant. So it had lost any architectural features of um, the normal prostate. And what he found is that if you added the most common pattern to the second most common pattern, that would give you the best indicator of how that tumor might act. Because there are scores from one to five, we add them together. So in theory, you could have a tumor, the lowest grade would be one plus one equals two and the highest grade would be five plus five equals 10. In practice though, grades one and two, we don't use. So really it's scores of three, four, and five. So the lowest grade tumor you can have is a three plus three equals six, and the highest grade tumor, it would be a five plus five equals 10. That can become confusing for a patient because the urologist might say, well, if you're gonna have a prostate cancer, the best one to have is this, that you've got three plus three equals six. And the patient thinks, well, why don't I have one? Surely one is better than six. (laughs) So, to overcome this confusion, they now have what's called a grade group. So, the lowest grade tumors, which would be a three plus three equals six, is now called grade group one. And there are five main grade groups, um, one through to five.
0: Is that now the terminology that is preferred by doctors or urologists or?
3: We use both because the pathologist still works in terms of the Gleason grading system. So, we'll come up with the Gleason grade first and then we'll convert that into the grade group. Is that the, the best measure we have for prognosis as to this is how it's going to behave? There's been so much work for all tumour types on um, you know genetics and the molecular features of tumours, but in terms of routine clinical practice, Gleason grading is the most powerful um, prognostic um, indicator that we use. We also use stage, which is a measure of um, how far along the tumour is in its natural um, history so is it confined to the prostate or is it spreading out of the prostate and invading adjacent organs but the Gleason grade gives us the 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 best um, idea of how this tumor is going to act so just going back if we know how we know that there's a range of behavior of prostate tumors and we have this grading system that works quite well and it's quite amazing that it's it's has been tweaked a little bit since the 60s but it's essentially the, the the same thing so, if we know how aggressive a tumor is going to be, then we know how hard we need to go at it. Um, we know whether do we need to go straight to surgery. Can we, can it, um, will it fit into the watchful waiting um, criteria? Mm-hmm. But obviously, you can't necessarily answer those questions without knowing the patient. It's it's not a um, a black and white, hard and fast rule. So there's a, a conversation between um, oncologists or urologists and the patient, and that's dependent upon you know, patient age or their comorbidities. So essentially, their life expectancy. So if uh, you know an 85 year old with um, poor health has a diagnosis of a, a low grade, maybe not three plus three, but maybe three plus four equals seven prostate cancer. Their life expectancy may be shorter than what the the tumor. Um, you know, in the the time it'll take for the tumours to get them, so they might uh, a surgical um, intervention may not be the best choice for them.
0: I was going to ask the the role of imaging then, with regards to the MRI or other imaging. It, what what role do they play in all of this now?
3: Yeah, so MRIs um, they're relatively recent in terms of their use in prostate cancer. Um, So 10 years ago when I was training, um, they weren't all that common, but now a lot more patients are getting them. When the urologist does the core biopsies of the prostate, we're sampling a very small proportion of the prostate. So it might be 1,000th or 1,10,000th of the actual prostate volume. So before we had the MRIs, the question is how how do you go about sampling it? So you have to be systematic and you sample all the different areas and hope that you hit the tumour. So if you do hit the tumor and you have a low-grade tumor, is that necessarily completely representative of the tumor? Have we just sampled a low-grade area of a tumor and there might be a high-grade area elsewhere? And I think that's where imaging helps. So with the MRI, we can see, okay, where exactly is this nodule, which might be suspicious um, for a cancer? Where is that in the prostate? And can we target it um, with more biopsies in that area? so that helps in terms of knowing whether you've, you've actually sampled um, the tumor. Uh, there are other imaging techniques um, that we've got now. So there's the, a PSMA PET scan. So PSMA is a protein um, produced by a, a prostate cells. What we have is a molecule which can specifically bind to PSMA and it's attached to a radioactive tracer. And then that's injected into the patient and that will go and seek out uh, and attached to the tumour and then um, the patient's put into a PET scanner. Um, and the idea behind that is we want to be able to pick up a metastatic disease. So if the patient has me- uh, metastases, it's uh, a surgical intervention. So taking out the prostate is, is a futile exercise essentially. Um, so this PSMA scan um, is a very specific way of detecting small deposits of tumour that have got outside the prostate.
0: Is there any role at the moment? Because molecular pathology is for for tumor marking and uh, and, uh, and identifying uh, is coming along in leaps and bounds. But is there any role for that at the moment for prostate cancer?
3: So at, at the moment in our day to day practice, there's no role for molecular um, in terms of a diagnosis or um, a prognosis. But I think that's that's what we're working towards. I suspect in our lifetime. Um, we'll come up with a way in order to predict which of these tumours are the ones that need to be aggressively treated and which ones can be left alone and followed. Thank you very much, Brad. Appreciate that. So you, me as an Aussie
1: male now will take more notice of my own maintenance, let my GP do what the GP needs to do and I'll give up digital self-examination for the time <laughs> being. Uh, but thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics and we continue the story there and we'd love to have you along.